This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. My name is Kav Akbar, and I wrote a novel called Martyr. Celebrated poet Kaveh Akbar has just released his first novel. Titled Martyr, it follows Iranian-American Cyrus Shams through his journey of sobriety and the quest for a meaningful existence. I recently spoke with Akbar about inserting aspects of himself into the novel, from character traits to his love of literature, what it means to write a book about martyrs as an Iranian-American, and much more. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I'm Beth Golay, and here's my conversation with Kaveh Akbar. So can you give our listeners a brief description of the book? How would you describe Martyr to somebody who has no idea what it's about? Yeah, I feel funny when I have to answer this question. I always want to say it's about art and martyrdom, which is true. Or I want to give like a half hour PowerPoint presentation. (laughs) And I'm still figuring out how to do anything in between those two. But to the best of my abilities, Martyr is a novel that follows a young Iranian immigrant to America named Cyrus, who is recently orphaned, recently sober, and not particularly attached to remaining in the world. But he wants to, if he is going to kill himself, he wants to make his killing himself useful to humanity in some way. He wants his death to matter. And uh, in his obsession around his death mattering, he discovers the work of an Iranian visual artist named Orkideh, who is performing her own dying in the Brooklyn Museum. And so he goes to interview Orchidette about her project of the sort of Marina Abramovich-esque, the artist is present, performance of her own dying. And that sort of animates the novel. A lot of the conversations in the novel are between those two. And then plot ensues. So talk to me about Cyrus's fascination with martyrs. He begins working on his own book about martyrs and and sections of that are included in the novel. And there's a really compelling tension in the novel as Cyrus wrestles with whether he's interested in a meaningful life or a meaningful death. Mm -hmm. And this seems fundamental to his fascination with martyrdom. But he's also often frustrated by his own kind of martyr complex, like when he feels guilty for not giving a cup of coffee to a stranger on the street or You know, it's like for his death to matter, his life has to matter first. What is he trying to learn about himself from his study of martyrs? Well, you've really read it closely. (laughs) I appreciate that. I'm grateful for that. The the beat about giving the cup of coffee to the stranger on the street or not giving the cup of coffee to a stranger on the street is the kind of crisis of ethics that plagues his consciousness, right? And in many ways, it seems to govern him. And similarly, for someone who is feeling suicidally sad, the the ethics of suicide are fascinating, right? You know, we pathologize it endlessly culturally, right? You know, and and we're right to, you know, it it, it speaks to you know a, a chemical imbalance in an organ infinitely times more complicated than the next most complicated organ right? Of course, there can be chemical imbalances that result in aberrant and self-destructive behaviors. But Cyrus is also interested in the ethics of suicide, 
And he becomes particularly interested in the lives of people who have died for causes larger than themselves, specifically those people who die for secular reasons, you know, because God is only one of the many, many divines towards which one might martyr themselves in Cyrus's head, right? There's also in Iran a particular cultural veneration of martyrdom that is a braid of religious and government propagandist and cultural reference that is almost mitochondrially installed into Cyrus's firmware. So he resents this obsession even while he's dominated by it. You know, living in Kansas, mm-hmm. I was interested in your description of Cyrus's experience in Indiana and his thoughts mm-hmm. on the Midwest. For example, he compares mm-hmm. Iranian politeness to Midwestern politeness, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Why was it important for the Midwest to be where Cyrus and his father immigrate? Well, not to put my thumb on the scale too much with autobiography, but when I moved to America, my dad worked in the Midwest. He worked on farms in the Midwest. And that's true of so many people, not just Iranian immigrants, but, you know, immigrants from South America and Central America and immigrants from Central Africa and West Africa, right? I mean, we're the farms on which my dad worked were almost exclusively staffed with such people, right? And I think that that's a major, major part of the immigrant story of America that doesn't often get told. I mean, that's not to say there are no portrayals of it, but it is maybe less of a part of the cultural consciousness. You know, people think that you can't get a good taco or you can't get good biryani in the Midwest. And actually, you know, there's an extraordinary density of diasporic populations in the Midwest, right? And so articulating that experience felt interesting to me, especially because Cyrus does travel to New York in the book, right? And so the kind of city mouse and the big city feeling that he feels there is another occasion for shame for him because he feels like he should be more literary and cultured and that he shouldn't be this intimidated and he shouldn't be getting lost on the subways, right? I think a lot of serious literary fiction, you know, takes for granted that New York is just this, you know, entity with which everyone has super familiarity with and everyone is super conversant and knowing which trains to take, which which way uptown and down to, you know, and these sorts of things. And Cyrus finds a way to turn that against himself too. You know, his his ignorance of those things is an indictment of his, you know, cultural intelligence, which I find very winning and charming. I could relate completely, whether it's New York or Chicago, whenever I get up off Mm -hmm. the subway, I always head in the wrong direction because I do not have the sun to orient me. So that was was very Well, and you have to know, uh, you know, that if you're headed to the Bronx, you're headed this way. And that if you're (laughs) headed to Brooklyn, you're headed this way. You know, like you have to know these things in order to understand the science, right? So it took me, you know, I, I have now gotten to travel to New York a lot. But when I first started going to New York for literary stuff, you know, I I got lost all constantly and I was constantly getting on the wrong trains and this and that. Well, since you brought it up first, you know, readers tend to assume there's a lot of the author in his work. And maybe mm-hmm. because this novel just feels so lived, I'm inclined to ask how much of Kaveh Akbar is in Cyrus Shams? I mean, it, uh, Cyrus emerges 
from my unprecedented experience, right? I mean, my unprecedented experience of lived life is the filter through which I shine the prism of language. And so anything that comes out of my pen is indelibly inflected by biography, whether I'm describing a spoon or whether I'm, you know, inventing a whole character out of, you know, out of the air. But that is also to say that I I think Orchida is tremendously autobiographical in many ways. And I think Ali is tremendously autobiographical and Arash and um, Z. And, you know, there, there are all these characters in the book that are little avatars of parts of my person. And Cyrus certainly feels similarly, but no more or less so than any of the other characters, though I think there are sort of superficial um uh autobiographical parallels you know i'm also an iranian immigrant who writes and is sober etc well that explains how you were able to assume so many of the perspectives so well so you are I an appreciate you saying that that's generous you are an established poet and this is your first novel so i have to ask what's the transition like into writing your first novel what can a novel achieve that poetry can't or vice versa Oh, wow. That's a big question. What can a novel achieve that poetry can't or vice versa? Well, I actually, and, you know, intelligent minds can disagree, but to my mind, poetry feels much closer to dance or to statuary than it does to the writing of narrative fiction, which is to say I had to learn a lot. I I did not assume the hubris of because I've spent my life learning how to be a poet, I would immediately know how to make a novel. I, I think they're actually quite different forms. You know, I think that a novel feels closer to a symphony or a movie, which are, which are, you know, no one would say because you can write a poem, you can write a symphony, right? And no one would say because you can write a poem, you can write a movie, right? You would sit down and study really hard. And so I put myself on this narrative diet of, reading two novels a week and watching a movie a day for the duration of my working on this project and just ravenously kleptomaniacally had an IV drip of narrative pouring into myself. Right. And, you know, figuring out how to get people into cars and up stairways and how to sit them at tables with each other and what they're doing with their hands while they're talking. Right. Um, these are things that, had never been majorly significant to me in the writing of lyric poetry, but suddenly became, you know, I had to explain how people got the money to buy a plane ticket, right? And I had never thought about that. And I didn't want to do it ham-fistedly, or I didn't want to neglect to do it and then have the reader being like, well, this, none of this makes sense, right? And so studying how people who do this for a living, studying how the people who preceded me do it was essential for me to be able to try to do it. I was struck by the way the book describes narrative and poetry. You write that addiction is an algorithm, sameness. The story is what comes after. And poetry was something he could do with his body without accidentally killing himself. Literature seems really central to the way Cyrus understands his addiction and sobriety. Why is that? When I got sober in those very, very early days, figuring out what to physically do with myself, not nothing high-minded or conceptual or mystical or spiritual about it, just literally what do I do with my body, 
right? Because there wasn't anything in my life up until that point, there wasn't anything in my adult life that wasn't predicated on narcotic pursuit, whether it was, you know, going to buy this drug from this guy or going to sell this drug to this guy so that I could sling it to this other person so that I could use that money to buy, you know, like, or going to work so that I could have money to get whatever, whatever, or um, using whatever, whatever, there was nothing in my life that wasn't predicated on narcotic pursuit. And so suddenly, when I got sober, I had 18 hours a day before I was allowed to go to sleep again to just fill, you know, to just fill with something. Right. And I had no hobbies other than doing drugs. I had no interests. I had no friends save those with whom I did drugs, you know. And so there was nothing in my life that I could easily fit into that massive cavity of living. And I found that when I went to the 811.5 section of the library, I could just pull poetry off the shelf and read a book and it didn't matter what it was. That was a literally a place to put myself for an hour, right? That was literally just a thing to do with my body. And then I had one fewer hour, two fewer hours, five fewer hours to try to figure out what to do with myself, right? Uh, I, I mean it in the most practical sort of mechanical way. Um, nothing sort of abstract or spiritual about it. It was just a place to put myself. And I wanted to relay some of that in the book too. Your title has an exclamation point and it makes <laughs> me curious. Is there a story behind that exclamation point and why is it part of the title of your novel? Yeah. Well, first of all, if I had called the book Martyr without an exclamation point, it would have made it sound very self-serious and sort of dour and joyless. And I hope that the novel doesn't feel that way. It's not for me to say, but I, I hope that the novel, even when it is talking about quite heavy themes or subjects, the heaviness is made dense by its awareness of joy and vice versa, that when the novel is being joyful or silly, it's a silliness made wise by having known real grief and terror. So the exclamation point is there to communicate something to the reader about tone and about the aesthetic treatment of serious themes. Also, as a Muslim man named Kaveh Akbar in America, writing a book called Martyr about martyrdom is a scary thing. You know, I mean, it's 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 not inert to have my book have that title on it with a very ethnic sounding name underneath it right you know it takes one fox news watching whatever to see that or to read you know a, a summary the wrong way or whatever and leap to certain conclusions right and there came a point when I started to understand what the book was going to be orbiting, that the that martyrdom was going to be a central theme of the book, where I realized that I could either spend the rest of my life sort of euphemizing around the subject and I could sort of dance around it constantly, or I could just get in front of it and call the book martyr and even shout the title, you know, like, like this is what I'm talking about. You hear sometimes musicians are like, I covered my body with tattoos so I wouldn't be able to get a normal job so that I would have to be forced to figure out how to make it as a musician. And the exclamation point and the title is almost that for me. 
where it's like I had to force myself to actually write the thing that I was interested in writing and not try to scale it back to be safer or to make myself feel less anxious about the way people who hate me and the people who look and pray like me will think about it. Even Cyrus and the and the artists joke about being on a watch list because of what mm-hmm. they're discussing. hundred yeah. percent. I mean, again, you know, it's it's emanating. It's they're sock puppets into whom I put my anxieties. Right. Yeah. Well, to me, the cover also was able to lend itself to this because it has almost a comic look and it gives a a hint a hint of the unexpected humor. But having read the book, mm-hmm. I mean, I would expect a much darker cover. And to me, that this walks a very fine line, but somehow it it works. Did you have anything to say about the cover as well? So the cover is by the brilliant Linda Huang, who has done some of my favorite contemporary book covers. And I just love her work so much. And it was actually her first shot at a cover. They, we had had other cover artists whose work felt, just like you're saying, like a little bit too somber I was gonna say sober which is a funny but you know uh, who's who's whose art felt just a little bit too sort of self-important or or made me feel like the book would be peacocking itself and there's a cheekiness to Huang's cover that I just I think it's so pitch perfect I think it's so um because it does sort of communicate that it is a serious book even I think you know a- ambition is almost a pejorative at this point, like you're not supposed to be. But I think it is an ambitious book in terms of the the bigness of the themes that it's thinking about in terms of life, death, country, legacy, nation, art, language. But it's also, I hope, readable and funny and playful. And I think that Huang's art is extraordinary at communicating that. So no, I I, I mean, I, I kept a, I took photos of book covers for like a year that I liked and sent those along and and I vetoed a number of covers before we turned to Huang. Um, but beyond that, it was all it was all her. Do you plot out your books in advance and just fill in the details or do you move through the story as you write it? That's kind of a joke question because it comes straight from the book. But I would like to ask you about <laughs> I your... Noticed that. <laughs> I noticed I didn't know if you were doing that on purpose or if you... Uh, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I would like to ask about your process with a book like this, because it's really an expansive novel. You've got all kinds of characters from across history that Cyrus is exploring in his martyr project, plus all kinds of pop culture references and pieces of text that link together in unexpected ways. So what was your approach to writing a story like this? How did you put it all together? Laboriously. (laughs) You know, I... The writer Tommy Orange and I share pages every Friday and we still, I mean, still to this day we do. And so he's probably read, you know, 1500 pages of Martyr, right? I mean, it's a fairly slim novel. It's like 320 pages, I think. Um, It's a fairly slim novel, but that's only because I wrote five of it, you know, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) And, and his book wandering stars which comes out in a month is extraordinary and it's the same way right like we both just wrote a lot and then figured out just ruthlessly what was absolutely essential and irreducible and then sort of retrofitted it to all talk to itself right uh which you know is not a small 
project. You know, if you say something on page 17 of a novel, it inflects what happens on, on page 27 and on page 75 and on page 172, you know, like it, everything in a novel reverberates so much and even minor changes feel architectonic. And so if a reader had any sense of how many hundreds of drafts go into any single page that they're reading and how many just endless, endless, endless rewrites, it wouldn't seem remarkable at all to have written a novel. It would, it just, it's, it's very much a thousand monkeys at a typewriter producing Hamlet, at least in terms of my novel, you know, I just, I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and eventually, you know, landed upon a thing that hopefully coheres or feels cogent. Several chapters consist of Cyrus's dreams, conversations between mm -hmm. two individuals, some involve unlikely participants. So talk to me about writing these dream sequences, because dreams can be magical. Was it a bit freeing writing these parts? Well, I appreciate your saying that. Um, I mean, the thing that everyone is supposed to do when you tell them about your dreams is sort of wince or roll their eyes, right? <laughs> I actually love hearing about people's dreams. I always ask my spouse, like, did you dream? You know, when we wake up in the mornings, I, I'm fascinated by people's dreams. I think it's wild that we spend a third of our lives with our brains just staging these performances for us, right? And it's weird that we don't talk about that more, in fact. And very, very, very early in the drafting process, I realized that these dreams were going to be a part of the book for better or for worse. And I know that they'll turn people off and that's fine. You know, I, I don't think it's a one size fits all novel. There are other brilliant novels out there for those people to read. Um, uh, I, when I say other brilliant novels, that sort of tacitly implies that I think my novel is brilliant. <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. But what I mean is there are plenty of there are plenty of works out there in the world for people to enjoy, right? I, I'm not saying that everyone should be able to enjoy this novel. And if they're not able to, it's an aesthetic defect on their part. But I will say that I studied the way that dream narratives have been told in art and what makes them feel load-bearing and important and also what makes them feel frivolous and unnecessary. And it tends to be the case that merely providing texture to characters is not sufficient in terms of like my reception of narrative art that deals in dreams. Like if the only point is to be sort of weird for the sake of weird or even to provide some more granularity to the characterizations, I tend to lose interest a little in those moments. I tend to feel a little slackness, but if there is some hint even of narrative advancement, if there is some meaningful correspondence with the actual narrative of the book that is happening outside of the dream or the movie or the TV show or whatever, then I tend to feel much more invested in the dream and I feel like its presence is more warranted. And so that was something that I took to heart, right? In, in the dreams, which are very playful and, you know, Lisa Simpson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and others make appearances, significant appearances. In those dreams, while they are playful, there are also recurring images that Cyrus has seen that day or has been thinking about or has, you know, a song is referenced and you'll see like an image in the dream that also appears in a lyric of the song, right? Which is 
how dreams work, right? It can be totally auxiliary to the main thrust of your day, but if it is anywhere in your consciousness, it will often recur in the dream. So there are those, and then there's also little breadcrumbs, you know, there, there, it's a, it's a book and there are central mysteries of the book and there are ways in which the dreams track Cyrus's progression through working out those mysteries consciously and unconsciously. I want to ask about a couple of themes that probably weren't there, but they kept popping up for me. So feel free to tell me that I was imagining it. One was ugliness. Ali Mm -hmm. was playing a game with Cyrus, identifying, you know, nationalities in a in a cafe, I think. And he explained that he knew someone was Persian by saying, we're just uglier. Or when Arash says that his is not a handsome face exactly, but ugly in a way that works or they talked about ugly, beautiful martyrs or cooing at ugly babies or the ugliness of anger. Am I imagining that? Was that a theme that was there? No, I love I love that. And yeah, I think about ugliness a lot. I think about ugliness in a way that works a lot, you know, uh, again, not to put an autobiographical thumb on the scale, but that scene in the restaurant really did happen to me with my dad when I was really little. And so I've thought about that word and, you know, English is not my dad's first language. And so for a long time, I just thought he had misspoken and that he meant to say, um, you know, Iranians are prettier, but I, I, he, he meant what he said, you know, he meant, uh, Iranians are just uglier. And it took me a really long time to pull that apart and figure out what he meant. And he didn't mean, well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but, but there is a way in which you can see experience is not inert and it reads on a face. It reads in a person's eyes and Persians have a lot of experience. You know, Iranians have a lot of experience both ancestrally and right now this second you know, living in a theocracy um, that is ruled by necrofascists, um, uh, but also targeted by the American necrofascistic empire and the uh, British, you know, and and um, and there was a revolution in 1979 that was in you know that was in many ways catalyzed by the UK and America's oil interests, right? And so there is a lot of, there is a lot of experience just hammered into the hearts and onto the faces of Iranians. Also just, I mean, purely speaking from vanity, I'm not like a conventionally beautiful chiseled jaw, high cheekbone person, right? And so figuring out how you know, as a kid, I had giant buck teeth and big, you know, Coke bottle lens glasses and was also just ethnic in the Midwest where, you know, I was in very, very white classrooms, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And so the word ugliness is a word that I've had a lot of time to think about and um, and come to terms with. Another repetition I noticed was amongness. Was I imagining that, too? No, I mean, that's a, that's a, first of all, it's a astute and beautiful and generous observation. And I'm grateful for your reading so closely, sincerely. Um, but yeah, I mean, where does one feel among this when one is uh, 
neither Iranian nor American, when one is neither straight nor can fully inhabit the identity of being queer or being gay? Where does one sit when one is not someone who goes to the masjid every Friday, but also certainly doesn't feel atheist or feels connected to Islam in important ways, right? It's a lot of places where one feels kind of liminal, right? And so among this is a profound privilege, right? When you can feel it, when you can be around people who allow you to feel that, whoever they may be, and in whatever way they allow you to feel it, it's it's a really lucky experience. You mentioned that you exchange pages with Tommy Orange every Friday. You thank him in your acknowledgments, and you mention Lauren Groff and other authors. And I mentioned Tommy Orange specifically because, you know, our Wichita listeners might be interested in this because we are reading his novel There, There for Wichita's Big Read, which is in March. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. What an incredible book. What an incredible, lucky Big Read to talk about together. And I'm wondering, what is the benefit of having literary friendships like these? What do you gain that you might not gain from non-literary friendships? Sure. Well, I'm very, I'm, I'm the richest person in the world in terms of having brilliant friends. Truly. I, I, I mean, you know, uh, I remember early in recovery, an elder in recovery told me, if you're the smartest person in the room where you're sitting, you might need to find better rooms, you know? Um, and I am very rarely in my life anymore, the smartest person sitting in the room that I'm in, right? And I love just sitting at the feet of Tommy and sitting at Lauren's feet or, you know, um, all of these titans who uh, writing has brought me into connection and into community with. It's extraordinary, right? I mean, I'm married to my favorite writer. You know, my, my spouse is the poet Paige Lewis who teaches me how to see the world without the damage of habituation every day. You know, when they see a robin on the porch, they see that specific robin. You know, they see the little flecks of snow on its left wing and the way that its one toe on its right foot is kind of crooked. I just see a robin if I see <laughs> anything. You know, I might just see a bird, you know, um, but they see that robin, you know. And so, I mean, I, I am made indelibly better by proximity it's just it's osmosis you know and trading pages with tommy i mean he's one of my best friends on the planet earth right which feels lopsided in terms of being narrative artists you know it's like sometimes uh, we'll trade pages and i'll read his and suddenly feel like mine was just like showing my macaroni art to michelangelo or something you know like like it's just like it's like what the heck am i doing you know um in this relationship but you know we 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 cheerlead for each other and he calls it the band like uh like we we have band practice every friday and um yeah his if you guys are reading there there right now um his next book is called wandering stars and it's sort of a prequel sequel to there there it's both a prequel and a sequel uh because tommy's brain just is brilliant in this way and it's also its own total different thing and it's it's just so good it's extraordinary and again like i you know i've been reading it since it was 
you know, just a mode of dust in Tommy's eye, you know, like since it was just the earliest possible drafts, just as he has with Martyr. So seeing it now as something that's about to come into the world that the entire world can enjoy and can sort of gas him up about the way that I've been gassing him up about, you know, is I'm really excited about it. Well, the book is Martyr. Kaveh Akbar, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much, Beth. Thank you so much for all of it. You've clearly spent real time with this book, and I'm, I'm so grateful to you for that. Uh, it's, it's not a small gift. That was Kaveh Akbar, author of the novel Martyr, which was published by Knopf. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.